Perhaps the charge of the Light Brigade was more spectacular, more melodramatic and picturesque, but not more gallant. It is one thing to ride knee to knee in the wild delirium of a cavalry charge under the eyes of armies. It is something else to plod doggedly on, so widely scattered as to seem alone over a barren hillside against an unseen enemy's invisible death singing its weird croon as it lurked in the air and stinging swiftly on every side. Man after man fell, but the others continued on through a hell of shrapnel and machine gun fire as would be impossible to exceed. Lieutenant Farley Granger, 362nd Infantry Regiment, 91st Wild West Division, Gen, Merzargon, September 29th, 1918. Powder River, Letter Buck, War Cry of the 91st Wild West Division, Mers Argonne, September 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 59, Mers Argonne, Wild West on the Mers. Okay, let's give a hearty welcome to listeners Robert and Alan, our latest patrons on Patreon. As patrons, Robert and Alan have access to episodes at least 24 hours before they are released on iTunes, as well as access to episodes not yet released. They will also have access to transcripts and bibliographies for every episode. If ongoing financial support for the BFWWP sounds like your jam, check us out in the episode links www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. You folks know, too, that you can do one-time donations through PayPal, and many thanks to listener Neil for your recent donation. You can also greatly help by giving the podcast a review on iTunes. Okay, last piece of admin news. With this episode the BFWWP should be on Spotify. To listener Craig and others, let me know if this is not the case. Thanks. Okay, back to the front. This episode, we're zeroing in on the 91st Wild West Division's sector of the Meurs Battlefront. As you will recall from episode 53, the 91st was a Green Division on the left flank of the American 1st Army's 5th Corps. The 5th Corps was the center of the American attack. The Wild West had been tasked with clearing the Meuse Valley west of Montfaucon, focusing on taking the village of Epinonville and the ridge it sat on. Epinonville had been taken late on the 26th of September after a day of hard combat, but Colonel John Henry Parker was forced to pull his 362nd Infantry Regiment back south of the village when higher command ordered the place cleared for artillery fire missions. The 91st, along with its equally 
FNG sister divisions, the 37th and the 79th, both to its right, were part of an American First Army gamble. The gamble was that while the 5th Corps pushed up through the Meuse Valley, the 1st Corps on its left and the 3rd Corps on its right would clear the flanks and make it easy for these three new divisions charged with the battle's most important task. As we know, that gamble did not work out as hoped. Still, the 91st had advanced a respectable five kilometers on the 26th, creating a loose salient whose apex was the 362nd Infantry dug in south of Epinonville. In episode 53, I said the division advanced some eight kilometers, but that was a miscalculation on my part. Again, five kilometers in one day was a respectable amount of ground covered for the Meuse Argonne. The 27th of September dawned with new attack orders for the 91st Division, just as with all the other divisions along the American front. The division's objective was again the village of Epinonville and its ridge. The 361st and 362nd Infantry Regiments would be again tasked with this mission. Having fought over Epinonville the previous day, the Germans now flooded troops into the village for its defense. Epinonville and Fontaine would soon be discovered to be outposts of the Krimhilde Stellung, which was the main German defense line in the Meuse. Men of Erste Gara Regiment Zufus, the 1st Guards Regiment, had occupied the orchard just south of Epinonville. Battalions from the 20th and 157th Infantry Regiments were also establishing themselves in defensive positions east and west of the village. To ensure the capture of Epinonville, the equally small village of Fontaine, just a kilometer or so to the west, also had to be secured. The U.S. 363rd and 364th Infantry Regiments formed the 91st Division's left front, and battalions from these two units would be attacking Fontaine. To the east, the attack on Epinonville began at 6 a.m., In the center and right of the division's front, the 361st and 362nd Infantry Regiments left the low ground of the Ruisseau de Baronvaux, or Baronvaux Creek, and began advancing up the same slope they had advanced up the afternoon before. The 362nd was to attack Epinonville itself again, with a battalion from the 361st to the left in support. Along the line, Shouts of Powder River, Letter Buck, could be heard as the men set off. The doughboys were good until they reached the top of the opposing ridge, where they were hit with heavy German machine gun fire, and then by their own artillery. As American shells landed amongst American soldiers, the attack quickly broke down into small groups of men huddling anywhere they could for safety. Chaos and panic were, understandably, just a moment's breath away from infecting the already tired men. So into this firestorm walked the six-foot-three Colonel John Henry Parker, a.k.a. Gatling Gun Parker. Described as both a Buffalo Bill by a French officer and an ass by one of his subordinates, Colonel Parker was, by most accounts, a rather shameless self-promoter. 
but he had the huevos to back up his bravado. He'd been on San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War. He'd been at Seychelles when the Germans raided the American lines there. He'd already been wounded several times during this war. The moment called for leadership, and Parker provided it. He walked onto the battlefield, quote, with his enormous pipe smoking and brandishing a cane like a young sapling and swearing like a trooper, unquote. Parker pointed forward with his cane, rallying his doughboys and leading them through the barrage. The colonel and his men ran through the exploding shells and down into lower ground. They advanced up the ridge where Epinonville sits, and here battle raged against the waiting Germans. The doughboys were again pinned down. In the ensuing firefight, the 37-millimeter gun teams came up to support the infantry, and a gun platoon leader named Lieutenant Martin exposed himself to enemy fire to help put his gun's fire on enemy positions. He eventually moved behind a tree, still a dangerous position, and kept calling out directions until he was shot and killed by a German bullet. It was in this action that Jeffrey Berkland's grandfather saw combat. Jeffrey is the author of the book A Brilliant Operation, which is a history of the 362nd Infantry in the Merzagarn, and so good that you should go out and buy a copy right now. So hit pause, buy the book, and then come back. The firefight spread as the German 150th Infantry Regiment sent its Frontschwein forward in a counterattack, enfilading machine gun fire coming from the village of Ivoiry due east of Epinonville slackened some as the Buckeye soldiers of the neighboring American 37th Division attacked it. Slowly, the doughboys inched closer to Epinonville. German artillery began to fall behind them, effectively indicating that forward was the only option for them. As enemy shells whistled and howled overhead, with machine gun fire hammering the air around them, Colonel Parker received another order to pull back to let the artillery hit Epinonville and its environs with another barrage. The doughboys pulled back again, and as some ate hardtack biscuits and corned beef for some type of calorie intake, they complained that no artillery shells fell on the village itself. The Germans thought much differently. The American guns targeted them as they waited in the Bois de Mont woods behind and north of Epinonville. In the early afternoon, the doughboys had gotten close enough to where they could now go for a double envelopment of Epinonville. 2nd Battalion of the 361st came at Epinonville from the southwest, hoping to outflank it and cut it off from the west side. At the same time, 2nd Battalion, 362nd Infantry, came at it from the southeast, hoping to break through the line and cut off the village on the east side. Providing a machine gun barrage was the 347th Machine Gun Battalion. Problems arose when the men of the 2nd Battalion, 361st Infantry, started to veer towards Eclefontaine. This created a gap in the American line. Doughboys of the 1st Battalion of the 361st rushed up to plug up the hole, but the momentum of the attack had been lost. A third attack came at 2.30 in the afternoon, with some artillery support, the doughboys of the 2nd Battalion, 362nd, continued trying to outflank Epinonville from the east. 
In short order, the Germans had them pinned down on the open ground below the village. The firefight continued until at last the men of the 362nd broke through the German line and into Epinovi itself. The surviving doughboys knew the place by now, and all enemy machine gun teams were dealt with before continuing the advance north into the Bois de Sierge and Bois de Mont. From the northeast came a company of Germans, thinking that Epinonville looked deserted. They would move in and reestablish German control over it. Staying carefully out of sight, a Captain Worsham had three machine guns where they would all have a clear field of fire. When the unsuspecting enemy soldiers were at 250 yards, the Americans opened fire. Colonel Parker later remarked that the Germans, caught in the open with nowhere to hide, had huddled like sheep as the bullets tore into them. By 5 p.m., Epinonville had been secured. To prepare for the inevitable counterattack, Colonel Parker personally organized a defense in depth around the village himself. Soon after, yet another order arrived from division headquarters ordering the 362nd to pull out of the village as corps artillery would be shelling the area and the doughboys would be danger close. So yet again, the surviving doughboys pulled back to largely the same positions they had been in the night before. As they settled in for the evening, the Germans launched the gas bombardment that left everyone wearing their masks for the rest of the night. The attack on Eclefontaine kicked off three and a half hours later under blistering machine gun fire. The men of the 363rd and 364th Infantry Regiments had to cross open ground that sloped gently upwards towards the villages, and this left them open to the terrible scything of the German machine gunners. The doughboys bolted forward as bullets cut the air all around them, rifles in hand and with hands on helmets as if in a storm. They soon came up against thick belts of barbed wire that stopped any sort of advance. Held up for hours by the wire and machine guns they couldn't quite reach, the doughboys received orders to pull back 150 meters south of the wire line. This was to allow the American artillery to rain shells on the barbed wire and Eclifontaine itself. As the whine of 75mm shells passed over the hunkered down doughboys, the mortar platoon came up with a captured German Minenwerfer and began lobbing German shells back at their previous owners. Lieutenant Russell Tripp's platoon of 37mm Puteaux guns joined the fight and began pumping 30 shells per minute into known enemy machine gun positions, quote, with rifle-like accuracy, unquote. Around 5 in the afternoon, the doughboys broke through the wire and defenses and stormed into Eclefontaine. They were a whirlwind. The village was cleared in a mad rush of bullets and bayonets, and then the American soldiers kept pushing until they were some 300 meters north of the smoking ruins of the village. During the clearing of Eclefontaine, a first lieutenant, Deming Bronson, of H Company, 364th Infantry, joined the assaulting E Company in battling the Germans there. First Lieutenant Bronson had already been grievously wounded in the face the previous day by an enemy grenade, but he had refused medical treatment. Now he joined E Company in the attack, and he personally took out a German machine gunner. 
The Doughboys then were forced to pull back south of Ecclefontaine, as 5th Corps' artillery was going to pound German positions along the D-998 road that runs from southwest to northeast through the village. First Lieutenant Bronson stayed in the most advanced position until his comrades had made it out. Wounded in both arms by an enemy shell as he pulled back, Bronson stayed throughout the night and again refused medical treatment until things were calm enough for him to do so. First Lieutenant Deming Bronson would later earn the Medal of Honor for, quote, conspicuous gallantry and the spirit of self-sacrifice, unquote. A Private L.B. McNamara was in the assaulting machine gun company and was part of the advance through Ecclefontaine and to the line north of it. But he had a curious experience with the withdrawal. Quote, I awoke feeling slightly cold and slowly separated myself from the bramble hedge which had served me both as boudoir and blanket. My company had advanced through the village during the afternoon and because of darkness had taken up a position along this hedge for the night. Everyone not on guard did as I had done, lay down for a well-earned rest. Corporal Copey's gun was in the hedge three feet away on my left, and another gun close by on the right. When I awakened, there was not a single belligerent sound. The front was quiet. I silently crawled over to Corporal Copey's gun emplacement, intending to comment on the undue stillness. Copy and his gun were gone. I went to the other emplacement. The spot was inhabited only by fantastic shadows. I reconnoitered the entire hedge. It was as free from my comrades as a Sunday KP list is of volunteers. Suddenly, I espied a figure asleep under a tree. With genuine relief, I went over to the tree and shook the sleeper and guardedly whispered in his ear, Hey, buddy, the company's moved out. No response. A beam of light flashed on the face of the sleeper. It was a giant Bosch who had been put to sleep forever by a good Yankee bullet. He was beginning to give forth that odor peculiar to dead Dutchmen. This was followed by the sound of a Bosch patrol dangerously near. My retreat which began simultaneously, may have lacked dramatic incident and military dignity, but it was accomplished with a profound singleness of purpose to gain a very definite objective in the rear, my company. Here, Private McNamara's story comes through to us in a fairly humorous way after the passage of a century. At the time, however, waking up absolutely alone on the battlefield, talking to a corpse and outrunning an enemy patrol, must have been terrifying. Saturday, the 28th of September, opened up with more attacks across the American front, and the 91st Division was no exception. 7.30 a.m. saw American gunners launch a gas barrage on the Germans. On the divisional front's left, the 363rd Infantry Regiment formed the far left flank, and to their right, the 364th went after Ecclefontaine, pushing through it and then further north with an attack that started at 9 a.m. North of Ecclefontaine, Doughboys found themselves pinned down by German fire coming from the Ferme de Exmurieux to the north. Exmurieux Farm sat to the west of the Bois de Epinette, and from its buildings, the Germans poured machine gun fire at the onrushing Americans. 
The Powder River boys had by now learned the value of ducking once lead started to fly horizontally. At first, we hesitated to take this precaution for fear of having our comrades think us scared, but that was due to our inexperience. First Lieutenants Wilson and Twos, authors of With the 364th Infantry in America, France, and Belgium, wrote, Exmurio fell around 1.30 later that afternoon. On the 91st Division's front right, the 362nd began the morning behind the chug of the 37mm guns pumping shells towards the Germans dug in south of Epinonville. What the Doughboys encountered was only a thin screen of Germans here, as the main body of the enemy lay north of the contested village. The Doughboys once again cleared the ground south of Epinonville, and then pushed into the village itself, and cleared it out for the fifth time in three days. With the help of the 361st Infantry, Epinonville was secured for the last time that morning. To the right of the 91st, the Ohio men of the 37th Buckeye Division had launched an attack on the neighboring village of Sierge and the ridge beyond it. Sierge was cleared, but once the Doughboys reached the ridge, they were hit with a hurricane of heavy fire that sent them retreating back through Sierge and to their jump-off lines. In the 91st center, the 3rd Battalion of the 361st helped to push through Epinonville and beyond to the Bois de Sierge, northwest of that village. The Doughboys ground their way through the heavily defended wood over the course of several hours. Once the Bois de Sierge was cleared, they could see the valley immediately beyond. In it sat La Grange au Bois, another farm complex similar to that of Exmurio to the west. Beyond La Grange au Bois, the ground sloped up to another low ridgeline where the village of Jeanne en Argonne sits. Jeanne had been wired for defense and was a bastion of the German third position, the Krimhilder Stellung. Between the north edge of the Bois de Sierres and Jeanne lay a mile of open ground. From the ridge, men of the German Infanterie Regiment 150 and the Reserve Infanterie Regiment 212 halted any further advance north of Ecclefontaine and Epinonville with heavy machine gun fire. Wanting to continue the attack as ordered by higher headquarters, Major Oscar Miller of the 3rd Battalion, 361st Infantry, regrouped his surviving men at the north edge of the Bois de Sierres. Once they were ready, he led them out from the trees and into the open and into the thwack of bullets punching into tired doughboys who couldn't react quickly enough. The fire continued as Major Miller and his men charged down into the valley, past Lagrange, and up the next ridge. Men continued to scream and fall all around him, yet Miller continued to lead by example. From the official citation, quote, Personally leading his command group forward between his front-line companies, Major Miller inspired his men by his personal courage, and they again pressed on toward the hostile position. As this officer led the renewed attack, he was shot in the right leg, but he nevertheless staggered forward at the head of his command. Soon afterwards, he was again shot in the right arm, but he continued the charge, personally cheering his troops on through the heavy machine gun fire. 
Just before the objective was reached, he received a wound in the abdomen, which forced him to the ground. But he continued to urge his men on, telling them to push on to the next ridge and leave him where he lay. Unquote. Major Miller died of his wounds the next day, and today he rests in the Meurs Argonne American Cemetery at Romagna Sumofacon. For his leadership, he would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. As the 28th gave up its daylight, the American army was slowly closing the distance on the Romagna Heights. Bois de Sierge and Bois de Bonny had been taken, and some food, ammunition, and replacement men were finally making it up to the front. In the 362nd Infantry Sector, Colonel Parker personally conducted a reconnaissance of the ground ahead. Behind the front, 5th Corps Commander Major General Cameron pushed for new attacks to be executed with, quote, utmost vigor, regardless of losses, unquote. The Wild West Doughboys dug in for the night once more. German shells pounded their positions throughout the night. Lieutenants Wilson and Tews wrote later in With the 364th in America, France, and Belgium about a newfound appreciation most everyone started to have. Quote, We also commenced to develop a strong friendship with the steel helmets, popularly known as tin hats or tin lizzies, since they had been produced by the Ford factories. Up to our first introduction to shellfire, we felt some animosity towards these helmets. They were heavy, and notably during the hikes and maneuvers in August, during our training, attracted and retained the sun's heat like small, fireless cookers. When we got into action, the weight promptly disappeared. The tin hat became a lifesaver for many, and serious wounds were avoided when shell splinters struck and were deflected by these helmets. They were also used as pillows, wash basins, and shovels. Unquote. The 29th saw another Meurs Argonne day of switching between rain and drizzle. It also saw the 35th Division to the left collapsing under the strain of heavy combat operations, and on the 91st Division's left front, the 363rd repelled a counterattack by the Germans with the help of two companies of the 364th. The Germans were scythed down with streams of American machine gun fire, and the attack failed. In retaliation, the Germans shelled the lines here heavily throughout the day. Losses in the 363rd and 364th mounted as the day wore on. On the division's right front, the new objective was the village of Gênes. The 362nd Infantry was tasked with taking it. As stated earlier, Gênes had been prepared for battle by the Germans. They had incorporated the village into their Krimhilde line, and by the morning of the 29th, elements of three German regiments were involved in the defense there. The 150th Infantry Regiment to the east, the 212th Reserve to the west, and men of the 450th Infantry rushing in to bolster the line. Under the same storm of German artillery, the 362nd Infantry pulled back to what the men were calling Miller Ridge, named after Major Oscar Miller. This was the line running along the north edge of the Bois de Sierge. At 0615, 
the American artillery announced its presence on the battlefield by pummeling Gen itself and the two prominent hills behind it with a barrage. This was the cue. The doughboys of the 362nd were off, passing through the remaining men of the 361st and pushing out into the open. They immediately started taking enfilade fire from Sierra's village and other strong points just to their right, where the 37th Division had been, but now was not. The flank of the 362nd, and thus of the entire 91st Division, was open because the 37th Division next door could not keep the pace. Heavy machine gun and artillery fire from Gen and its hills made everything the harder. Germans threw gas at the oncoming Americans, forcing the doughboys to stop and get their protective masks on. The first attack went nowhere. A second attack a short time later saw Colonel Parker put his tactical ideas to work. He had shell-shot auto-rifle teams advance to high ground where they could put out covering fire as small teams of riflemen rushed up and then passed them. Enemy machine gun fire was so heavy that everyone was pinned down and later had to be pulled back when artillery support was provided. The 91st was in a tough position now. On its left, the 35th Division was collapsing around Exermont, and a crisis was developing there. On the right, the 37th Division had not yet retaken Sierge, and companies of the 362nd were echeloned towards the 37th to keep in contact and keep the Germans from turning the flank there. The 91st, however, was stretched out. Now they also couldn't advance forward either. And the Germans were slamming artillery shells into the American front line ceaselessly. Gen was to be taken. Major General William Johnston, a career soldier and commander of the 91st, had just heard an earful from his corps commander that his 181st Brigade was the one unit holding up the entire American 1st Army. Everyone was waiting on them. Johnston had informed Major General Cameron that his men were doing everything they were supposed to do, but that they weren't supported on their flanks. The 35th was a mess, and the 37th was too far back. Johnston requested troops from the Reserve 32nd Red Arrow Division be sent up, a request that was denied. The 91st Division was on its own. The 361st and the 362nd were part of that 181st Brigade. 2nd Battalion of the 362nd was assigned the task of attacking Gen for the third time. Gen sat a mile away, with two hills behind it, providing more overwatch than the village itself already had. Colonel John Henry Parker stated that the open fields between him and Jen were, quote, double enfiladed by machine guns and subject to the highest concentration of artillery fire that I have ever seen, unquote. The above quote comes from Dr. Ed Langle's book, To Conquer Hell, and the following quote comes from there as well. Colonel Parker informed Major General Johnston, quote, The position can be taken if it is desired to pay the price, which will be very severe loss. Johnston's reply was as would have been expected. The brigade will attack with the 362nd Infantry leading and will carry the town of Gen without halt 
regardless of cost. The attack was set for 3.40 p.m. when an American bombardment of Gênes would lift. On the division's left front, Ferme de Tronzol had been secured to protect against enfilading fire from the west. Le Grange au Bois would have to be secured again on the way to Gênes. The remaining officers of the 362nd Infantry were read the orders as German shells shook the earth around them. Our losses would be terrible, a Captain Montgomery said, shocked at what he was being asked to do. A Captain Bradbury replied sharply, to hell with the losses, read the order. From Dr. Langle's To Conquer Hell, Lieutenant Farley Granger described the approach to Jen. Quote, every square yard was visible from the higher hills beyond, occupied by the enemy, and the concrete pillbox on Hill 255, and every foot swept by machine gun and artillery fire. Protection, there was none, not even concealment for one man. The gullies between the hills were swept by enfilading fire from the wooded hills above Jen, and the hillsides were commanded by nests hidden in the fields, unquote. Colonel Parker would lead the attack. For something as horrific as what was about to happen, Parker knew that his men needed to see him at the front of his regiment. The American bombardment fired on until 3.40 p.m., with the men of the 347th Machine Gun Battalion putting fire on Lagrange Farm. Control of it had been lost since the day before. The doughboys of 2nd Battalion, 362nd Infantry, left the cover of the Bois de Sierre's woods with the tall figure of Gatling Gun Parker leading them forward. In an article titled Butcher's Bill, the World War I battle that turned into a suicide mission, author Patrick K. O'Donnell writes that a Lieutenant William Hutchinson later stated that, quote, the order to attack had been countermanded, but too late, the countermanding coming just after we started, unquote. The colonel could not be found, Hutchinson said, I do not know that he could have prevented it entirely, but it surely could have been called off before we had all the losses at Gen. The doughboys were already charging across the open ground. The world exploded, the earth roaring in bursts of wet earth and the air buzzing with a million angry bees. Doughboys started going down in droves all through the massed ranks. Others simply exploded into pieces, torn apart by shell impacts. Parker had his heavy weapons teams just behind the infantry, but as they carried much heavier equipment, they moved slower and thus caught more of the terrible firestorm the Germans unleashed on those open fields. Germans from the Infanterie Regiment 150 fired from the right flank that the 37th Division should have covered, its gunners chewing into the Americans' ranks. Troops from the 1st Battalion, 361st Infantry, attacked La Grange au Bois with a 75mm gun and made the enemy retreat when the 75mm shells punched much larger holes than the Germans had been expecting. Colonel Parker and his 2nd Battalion, 362nd Infantry, had a half mile to go. From Jeffrey Brooklyn's book, A Brilliant Operation, quote, It was later reported that half of the regiment's losses on this day occurred in this inferno. German artillery exploded amongst the soldiers at a colossal rate. The air shook as tons of earth lifted skyward 
in massive eruptions, crashing down on the battalion. As one burst subsided, another whizzed in and took its place. Smoke, dust, and debris filled the air. Each man's world was reduced to a small area around him, running behind a soldier in front with no awareness of direction. The individual felt alone even with the hundreds who surrounded him. Any semblance of military order had diverged into a mass of swarming soldiers rushing in the same relative direction." Unquote. Crossing the fields at the head of his men, Colonel Parker was hit three times before he went down into a shell hole with other wounded men. Around 4.30 in the afternoon, doughboys began entering Gen. Outside the village, Lieutenant Hutchinson and his men encountered a captured Renault FT-17 tank commandeered by the Germans. According to Patrick O'Donnell's article, Hutchinson and his men, quote, swarmed the tank and shot the crew as those inside attempted to flee the vehicle. Climbing into the blood-drenched FT, they turned the steel monster on Gen, and the tank's machine gun tore into Bosch nests, unquote. Clearing the village was no easy feat, despite the fact that the German 212th Reserve Infantry Regiment pulled out and headed to Hill 255 overlooking Gen. The satisfaction of some bayonet work was given to us, Lieutenant Farley Granger stated later. Still, losses were heavy. Men from the 1st Battalion, 362nd, pushed in from the east end of the village, and the advance to the ridge beyond Gen continued. Contact with the enemy developed into a heavy firefight northeast of Gen, with the Doughboys taking fire from Hill 255. To make matters more precarious, American artillery was starting to come in danger close, meaning it could just as easily pulverize Doughboys as it could Frenchvine. The Germans were working hard to give little ground, but the Powder River Boys were pushing against them relentlessly. The Germans rushed in three battalions to contain the enemy advance, and they were as equally in disarray as the Americans were. The hammer of machine gun fire and the scream of incoming shells eventually gave way as men from both sides dug in. The Americans settled into foxholes around Gen in an unstable arc around the village. On the other side of no man's land, the Germans realized they had stopped the Americans, but with great difficulty. Night fell. The 362nd was in bad shape, having lost 1,100 men in the past three days. The 91st Division as a whole was in a dangerous position as both of its flanks were in the air, to use the slang from that era. On its left, the 35th had been punched out of Exomont and back two miles, and on the right, the 37th Buckeyes were way behind as well. The Wild West boys had fought the enemy to a standstill north of Gen and had thus avoided being pinched out and encircled. However, the division was exhausted and it hung dangerously far forward of the rest of the divisions in the line. Major General William Johnston had to take all this into consideration, and after some time, it was decided that the division had to re-establish itself on a line running Tronsol Farm, Bois de Bonny, Bois de Sierge, to Lagrange Farm. The 362nd would have to withdraw from Gênes and the hills beyond. After the attack order and the failed cancellation order, this latest command was almost too much to believe. 
after a dinner of liberated cabbages complete with, quote, dirt and maybe worms, unquote. Lieutenant Paul Hammond collapsed asleep in a ditch. He was awakened by another lieutenant who found Hammond in the dark thanks to his bald head and was given the order to withdraw. It took a while for the exhausted officers to process what they were being told to do. Everyone had been awake for upwards of three days at this point. Everyone was wet and nearly starving, and no one was at their sharpest. But the order was determined to be very real, and so every doughboy who had fallen dead or dying in the fields south of Jen had done so for naught. Slowly, the men began to pull back in the dark, evacuating the hills and then Jen itself. We were all so tired that we did not have much feeling one way or the other at the time, Lieutenant Hutchinson said later. But later the full truth dawned on us. We were withdrawing to the point from which we had started the attack. The whole terrible afternoon and hideous night to follow were all for nothing. We were simply ahead of the organizations on our flank. The attack had been at a terrible cost through an ill-advised order. This quote comes to us from Dr. Langle's book, To Conquer Hell. In the late dark and then early dawn, the Americans groped their way back through the fields to the Bois de Sierge. Men searched for wounded as best they could, and one stretcher-bearer team left a man they'd been carrying when they saw he had already gone west. They promptly picked up another wounded doughboy. There were plenty, and many of the wounded were left behind. The dead, of course, were left where they lay. Sometimes they were covered with their own overcoats, the only respect their comrades could give them under the circumstances. The survivors made it back to American lines. They were dirty, gassed, and racked with diarrhea and dysentery from exposure. Jeanne, of course, was promptly reoccupied by the Germans. The 91st Division remained on the front line for four more days until they were relieved by the fresh 32nd Division on the night of October 3rd. Some units of the 91st would remain holding the line for several more days. The Wild West had advanced some eight miles at a cost of around 4,700 men killed, wounded, or missing. When all units of the 91st were finally pulled off the line, the division was done with its service on the Meuse Argonne. It wasn't over for the Wild West, though. Having proven itself able in combat, the 91st was shuttled across France and into Flanders, where it would join the Allied offensive in the Ypres-Lille sector. That's another battle for another time, though. All right, so we're going to leave it here. I have to make that plug again for Jeffrey Berkland's book. If you enjoyed the stories of the 91st Division and or have an ancestor who served with them, please do go out and buy A Brilliant Operation, the 362nd Infantry Regiment in France and Belgium, 1917 through 1919. It's a great read and a homage to Jeffrey's grandfather who served in a 37-millimeter gun platoon in the battles we just discussed. There are a lot of great histories coming out with the centenary of the Great War just passed as people look into the events of their grandfather's lives. Okay, one last thing, uh, an admin note here. In 
a few of the podcast episodes, I have used the three letters FNG to describe the green American divisions. FNG is a Vietnam War era nickname for new men who had just arrived in that theater of war. And of course, it means effing new guy. You can fill in the rest of the F word, I'm, I'm quite sure. Like my buddy Chuck says, you didn't ask, but now you know. Okay, next episode, we're on to Montfaucon. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the podcast website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.